We're jumping right back into the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 14, as you might have seen on your outline. Uh, We are finding ourselves in the second installment of the Samson saga. Uh, There is four chapters, so there will be four sermons as we talk about Samson. And, you know, I know Justin talked about this a little bit last week, but I would say the same thing. The Samson story is probably one of the most famous stories of Scripture. Uh, You know, a little from the time you're two or three years old, you know about the guy with long hair that could kill a lion with his bare hands. Uh, and uh, and we've heard the stories, and honestly, he's become a little bit of a, uh, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Samson. That's what he's become, and, and a lot of times we, we, uh, we look at him and think, wow, that was some kind of hero. Um, again, as we've looked at this through the book of Joshua and now the book of Judges, I want to remind everyone that the people that are in these books are not the heroes. God is the hero, the ultimate hero. Uh, God comes and uses men, but he is the hero. And that is key as we go forward, as we talk about Samson, because I'm thinking, and I believe, now some of you may not be in this place, but I know for me, when I started reading this story all over again, and reading about Samson's life, and how God used him, and what Samson did, I quickly realized that a lot of my preconceived ideas about Samson weren't really right. See, Samson wasn't just a good dude that did a couple bad things. Samson, as we're going to see today, starts a spiral that you do not see many characters in scripture that get to the place where Samson gets to, where he is completely and utterly walked away from God and is just one of, if you're acting, if you're talking about the character of people, one of the worst characters in all of the Bible. As you look at how flawed, how sinful, how selfish, and really, if I'm going to use the word, how bad he really is. And we're going to see that, and we're going to see very clearly through this story, as we continue today in chapter 14, and then in the next couple weeks, we will see clearly that there is no way that this guy, according to his own strength, his own power, his own character, is any kind of hero. But the only hero, indeed, is God himself. And so I want to just reference that, keep you in, keep that in mind as we go into the rest of this story of Samson. And we're going to see that God indeed shows himself to be the hero despite a very sinful and selfish man. So far in Judges, I'm going to jump right into the review. So if you haven't been with us or if it's been a while, you might get caught back up to where we've been. Through the book of Judges so far, we've seen that Israel started off in courage uh, they started in, encouraged by driving out all the Canaanites, the people that dwelled in the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, and now they're coming into it. And now, after Joshua has had victory over Canaan, now they are told that they have to go and finish driving out all the Canaanites out of the land. But we've seen that Israel very quickly gave in to compromise. They very quickly didn't drive out the people, but let them stay. And as they did that, they began to assimilate into the Canaanite culture. They began not only to let the people stay, but the culture stay. And the culture was one of idolatry, was one of serving false gods. And they let that become part of their own culture. And Israel forgot God and instead forgot Yahweh and started following other gods. The carousel of compromise we have seen through the book of Judges is very simple. We see Israel in disobedience. Then we see God bringing discipline And then we see God, through a judge, bringing deliverance. 
And this is time and time again. We see that Israel disobeys. God has to discipline them by bringing in another foreign nation to dominate them, to enslave them. And then God also brings deliverance. And we see this time and time and time again. And now we're at the last judge. The last one we're told any specifics about is Samson. And we're going to see that 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 carousel of compromise will continue. We've seen so far in the book of Judges, even in the hardest, worst, most depressing moments, that Yahweh is the God of Israel. Yahweh is our God, the great I Am. He gives undeserved grace and perfect justice, all to show His glory. We've seen that time and time again throughout these stories. We've also seen that Yahweh is saving Israel from foreign oppressors. Time and time again, we see a foreign oppressor comes and then they're driven out. But now at the end, towards the end of this book, as we see Samson come on the scene, and then even after Samson, we're going to see very clearly that although God has stepped in to deliver them from the people around them, they are not being delivered from themselves, from their own selfishness, from their own sin, from their own apostasy, and that is going to eat them alive, and it's going to destroy them. So we've seen that God at this point has kind of said, all right, Israel, if you're going to continue going this way, then you are going to destroy yourselves, and he lets it happen. But now we see Samson, and we were introduced to Samson last week. He was born, and he is the last judge, as I said. And if you remember what Justin said last week when he was preaching on this, he said, he pointed out the idea that Samson is going to be a judge that is going to begin to bring deliverance from the Philistines. That key word is begin. He wouldn't finish it. He wouldn't bring complete deliverance. He wouldn't bring even really lasting deliverance of any kind. He would only start the process of bringing Israel to deliverance from the Philistines. And ultimately, uh, we will see further on and later on as we look through the rest of Scripture and get to Jesus, that Jesus will be the ultimate deliverer over sin. But Samson is just a flawed individual who God will use to begin to bring deliverance. And so that's where we've been. Samson is born kind of in a miraculous type of way, a barren woman that now has had this son. They name him Samson. He's been made a Nazarite, which means he's uh, devoted to the service of God. He's not to cut his hair. He's not to drink anything from the vine, no alcoholic beverages. He is to not touch anything dead. Those are the main three things. Don't Don't cut your hair, don't touch dead things, and don't drink. And so he's been told not to do these things. He's made a vow. He's made a promise. And his parents have made a promise for him, really, that he would be a Nazarite, someone who is dedicated to the service of God. And that is where we find ourselves now in 14. In chapter 13, at the end, we see that the Spirit of the Lord starts to stir him, starts to aggravate him a little bit, get him uh, to start moving in the direction of what God will have to use him for. And we see that he's growing as a young man, but now in 14 we see the beginning of his adulthood, the beginning of his adult story, and we see Samson very clearly for who he is and who God is as well. All right, so our key thought for this morning is going to be our selfish desires will lead to a downfall. Our selfish desires will lead to a downfall. In just a moment, I'm going to read a few verses. But as I thought about the story of Samson, this other story that maybe you are familiar with, maybe you're not, came to my mind. And I know this is weird, and I know that uh, I'm a weird person. Uh, But as I thought about the person of Samson and how things work out, especially in chapter 14, 
I was brought back to one of my favorite childhood movies, a movie that I watched many, many, many times. And then recently they came out with a new version that I watched several times as well with my wife and my kids. And that's either, depending on which way you would like to look at it, it's either Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. But that story and that movie was one of those movies that just really, I just loved to watch it. It was always on in my house. And when they made the new one, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, again, it was, a, it was a fun reliving of my childhood. But in that movie, if you remember, and if you haven't seen it, you might be a little behind in how I describe this, but basically a bunch of kids are asked to come to a chocolate factory, and they're going to be given a tour. Now, unbeknownst to them, they don't understand that Willy Wonka is looking for someone who will take over the chocolate factory. So they come into the chocolate factory, and he's given them a tour, and we're introduced to several of these characters, these children that have come because they received a golden ticket. And so they're in the chocolate factory. And you've got Charlie, of course, the main character, Charlie Bucket. You've got Violet Beauregard, Augustus Gloop, Mike TV, and Veruca Salt. And, and these, uh, these characters then go through this chocolate factory. And throughout the course of the movie or the book, if you've read the book, you will see um, that most of these kids are selfish uh, uh, to the core. Like, they're just so selfish, all they can think about is themselves, all they want is what they want, and they don't care about anyone or anything else. You see, uh, and I don't remember what the order is, I know Augustus Gloop is the first one, if you remember, there's this river of chocolate that's going through the factory, and he's trying to scoop in all the chocolate, because he's kind of a he's, a, he's a glutton for chocolate, right? And he ends up falling into the river, and he gets sucked up a tube, and the Oompa Loompas sing a really cool song. But it was because... <laughs> Uh, but it was because he was greedy and he wanted chocolate. He wanted to drink that chocolate. Who wouldn't? It's a river of chocolate. And so he goes to drink and he falls in. And that comes, to, it ends up, make, let it, he gets sucked out and he ends up not being able to go through the rest of the tour. Uh, I, I remember Violet Beauregard, she's the one that, uh, she has an obsession with chewing gum, if you remember her, and she wanted to chew the specific gum that was gonna, uh, that was gonna go through a whole array of tastes, and, and Willy Wonka says, don't do it, we haven't tested it, we're, we're, there's still some things that aren't really working. She doesn't care, because her desire is to chew the gum, so she grabs the gum, she chews it, and she turns into a big blueberry that they have to juice. And again, Oompa Loompa sing a nice song. Then you've got Mike TV. Uh, he's a kid who just, he wants popularity. He wants, he wants the world and he wants to be a TV personality. He wants what the world says is great. He wants to be on TV. And so then he's given an opportunity as they're going through the, the, uh, the factory to actually be in a TV commercial and it involves shrinking yourself and he ends up getting shrunk to this size and they have to stretch him out to get back to size again with another song. And so we see this happen again, finally with Veruca, and I don't know if she was really the last one, but now this is where things get a little weird and we could have a debate. Was it a goose or was it a squirrel? I don't know. But in any case, Veruca wants an animal for a pet because that's what she wants. She wants the goose that'll lay the golden egg or the, uh, she, she wants... Uh, she wants the squirrel, uh, she wants to have something for herself, and she ends up getting, well, depends on which movie you watch, it doesn't turn out well for her either way. But all of these kids were driven by one thing, and their one thing that they were driven by was their desire. They wanted something, so they went for it, and it didn't work out for any of them. Now, Charlie, you know, ends up being the one that uh, goes through the whole thing and ends up uh, getting the chocolate factory, partially because he wasn't going to sell the, the, the uh, 
recipe to another chocolate maker. But Charlie makes it through because as you look at Charlie in that video, in that movie, he becomes the, the good kid, the one that isn't only out for himself, but cares about his family and cares about others. And we see that things work out much better for him. But these other kids we see are just destroyed by their desire and their desire brings a downfall in their life. Now, I just explained a movie that many of you have watched, and I know, as I said before, it's kind of strange, but when I see Samson, I think of those kids in the chocolate factory. Samson is driven by his desire. Samson is driven by his selfish desires, and it does lead to his downfall. Now, God will use him, but it won't mean that he is exempt from any pain, and we'll look at that as we go through today. This key thought of our selfish desires will lead to a downfall. Our desires will lead to a downfall is seen in the book of James. just want to read that. I won't spend too much time on there. I just want to give us that as a background. The book of James is very clear about where sin and death and destruction come from. It's not from anybody else and it's not from God, but James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The truth of the matter of this verse is that desire leads to temptation, temptation leads to sin, sin leads to death. So in other words, selfish desire will lead to a downfall, to death. Now what are these desires, though, that will lead towards a downfall, that will lead towards death? Well, we see that in the book of 1 John. First John are some of these desires. And this is a key passage because you're going to see that Samson, although he obviously didn't have the New Testament at this point, Samson is going to be an example of what we shouldn't do, what we shouldn't desire. And what are these things that we shouldn't desire? Well, we see that in First John, once again, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I'll start in 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Notice that worldly desires of the flesh, eyes, and pride pass. They are passing. They aren't important. They don't matter and actually end up in destruction. But to have true life before God is to follow his will, to obey him. And so we're going to go back now and see the Samson. We're going to read chapter 14. And I want you to think about these desires of the world that we are called not to go after. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the desire of pride, really. And look for those things as we read through Judges chapter 14 and you will see that... um, that Samson definitely is falling for those desires and his selfish desires are going to bring a downfall. And one more thing before we read. Notice also as we read that five times in this passage the the phrase went down is going to be used. Now it's interesting now that a lot of these times it's talking about maybe um, geographically or topically like or, or that uh, there is going to be a move towards a certain direction. But five times in this passage, we're told that Samson or his parents go down. And there are many commentators and many people who looked at this passage and said that is a really strange way to write this in there, and it's not seen anywhere else. And it's interesting that we're going to see this phrase went down again and again and again, and I think it's not only a physical indicator of what's happening, but it's also a spiritual indicator of what's happening. 
because Samson is making is taking a downfall and it's due to his desires. So let us just go to chapter 14 and read what happens as you look for those things. Chapter 14 in the book of Judges. Read along with me this morning. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Go get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. The father and mother did, his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. And he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them where he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, so the young men, so for, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And three days, in three days they could not solve the riddle. And on the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you, have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me, you do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, what shall I, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard, and she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city came to him on the seventh day before the sun went down. What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. This wouldn't make a very good Hallmark movie, would it? <laughs> some interesting things happen, but let's, let's try to get through this story quickly. There's some things I want to draw out at the end, and I don't want us to take too long to get there. But let's start in the first point today. We see that Samson's downfall included the desire of his eyes. Samson's downfall included the desire of his eyes. In the first part of this chapter, we see that Samson, he defies his parents by seeking a Philistine woman. Now, it's interesting what we're told here. He wants a Philistine woman, and he says this to his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Tindaman. Now, get her for me as my wife. 
it's very clear that he sees a woman that he desires. For those of you who would, would try to figure out what's going on here, this is a young man, okay, that is just totally infatuated with this woman. And I, from what we can tell, he hasn't even talked to her yet. This is not like he got to know her and then decided he liked her and then said, go get her for me as my wife. He saw her, he thought she was good looking, and so therefore asked his parents to go get her for him. This is not how it normally should go. And so we see, he saw her and she looked good, so he wanted her. So he not only defies his parents, because then they say, wait, what? come on, can't you find somebody else, somebody that's a relative, somebody from our, you know, from Israel? Can't you find someone else? Isn't there anyone other than a Philistine? And he defies his parents because he says, no, go get her. He also not only defies his parents and doesn't listen to the people that God has put in his life, he also defies God blatantly through his desire to marry a pagan. You see, this is not an issue of what, the, what we would phrase today as an interracial marriage. This isn't an issue of you can't go outside of your ethnicity to find a, a spouse. That's not, it's not racism here, but it's very simple. When we see that his father and mother said this to him, they say that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. The point here is that the Philistines, it's not about their, their ethnicity, it's about the fact that they are uncircumcised. They are not followers of Yahweh. They are not in that, uh, they are not in that religion. They don't believe in Yahweh. They don't believe in Him. And therefore, they're saying, why would you go to the uncircumcised Philistines? It's been very much shown all the way through the Old Testament that we've been so far. From the time of Moses to Joshua, there is one thing the Israelites are told time and time again not to do. And that is one simple thing. Don't marry outside of those who follow Yahweh. Don't do it. It'll draw you away. Don't be, as we would call it today, don't be unequally yoked, as Paul would talk about in the New Testament. And this has been something that from the very beginning of all of the Old Testament, this has been clear to Israel. So Samson would know that this was not of God's will. And so he not only defies his parents, but he defies God himself. And then we read this very interesting comment, and we'll get back to this later on in the sermon. At the end of this, end of chapter 14, verse 3, says this, says, but Samson said to his father, after they told him, you're defying us, you're defying God, he says, go get her for me, and this is the key phrase, for she is right in my eyes. Samson has chosen to have no concern for his parents or for God. He only has a concern for what he thinks, what he feels, and what he sees is right. He is not going to the authorities that God has put over them and he, over him, and he is not looking to God himself. He's looking to himself. He's looking, he says, I'm going to do what I want to do. If I see it, I'm going to do it. If I see it, I'm going to want it, and I'm going to get it. That is Samson's mindset. He has desires of the eyes. He sees a woman. He sees what he wants, and therefore he will go get it, and he will ignore anyone and anything that gets in the way because he is so obsessed with needing to do what he thinks is right. As we'll see later, this is not any different than the rest of Israel. But the second point we're going to look at before we get to that point is that Samson's downfall not only included the desire of his eyes, it included the desires of his flesh. The desires of pleasure really is what this is about. It's 
It's to pleasure our own flesh. So that can come in the, in the realm of, of food or sexual desire or all these different things. And what we're going to see uh, is Samson in, very, in a lot of different ways is going to give in to the desires of his flesh. He wants something and so he's going to do it. And so what we see in the next section, verses uh, 5 through 10, uh, and we'll get back to chapter 4, by the way, later on. I know we kind of skipped over that, but that, we will get back to that at the end. But in, chapter, in this chapter, verse 5, uh, Samson went down with his mother and father to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, let's just pause there. Remember, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to have anything that comes from the vine. He's not supposed to intake any of it. Kind of interesting that he decides to take a path through a vineyard, which would include grapes, which would probably be a winery as well. And so he's passing through that, and that's kind of a weird thing. We don't know if he was drinking at that point, but he shouldn't have been there. It wasn't a good idea. And behold, then this young lion comes up, and uh, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord gives him strength. The Spirit of Yahweh gives him strength. And, and although he has nothing in his hand, he tears the lion in as he tears a young goat. Which, if you've heard anybody talk about this, a young goat, who knows? I don't know. I don't think it was normal, but apparently... People tore, tore, tore young goat, goats, I don't know. But he tears this lion, whatever it is, he tears it apart with his bare hands. This is a really cool thing, right? And this is one thing you remember is the kid's story. And you think about Samson being so strong to do this. Now, I would just say, I don't think he should have been in the vineyard in the first place. And I'm not so sure that he needed to tear it apart, but he did. So he does that. And then we're told his father and mother weren't with him. Because he's like, they, he didn't tell them what he'd done. In killing the lion, he touched a dead body. We'll see this happen more, but it's going to go from a lion to people. Uh, but either way, uh, Samson right here is breaking his Nazarite vow of touching what is dead, and he's going to do that even more in just a moment. As we see what happens after he kills this lion, all right, so in a vineyard, he killed a lion and ate out of his dead body. That's what we see next. So he shouldn't have been isolated in the vineyard. He kills this lion and then he eats the honey from its corpse. Now, if you're not supposed to touch anything dead, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to eat something out of something that's dead. That just doesn't make sense. And yet Samson wants the honey. He wants to kill the lion, so he does. He wants the honey, so he scoops it and eats it, gives it to his parents and causes them to sin as well and causes them to become defiled and unclean because he doesn't have any concern about anyone else except himself. This is becoming so abundantly clear. He scoops this honey out to eat it because he's hungry. He wants to fulfill the desire of his flesh, his hunger, and he doesn't care that that means that he has to, to go against the vow that was made for him to serve God and he touches an unclean dead thing and then also makes his parents unclean by giving them the honey that was inside the carcass. Not a good dude here. He's not doing what he should be doing. This is not how a man of God, this is not how a judge, this is not how someone should be acting, and yet he does it. He's following the lusts and the desires of his flesh. But he also, we also see that happen here at the end of uh, this, again in verse 7, he went down and talked with the woman, so now he talks to this Philistine woman that he's seen, and she was again right in Samson's eyes, and we're going to see that he goes, now, this is a little bit of uh, guesswork, but it's pretty obvious uh, by the fact of how Samson is acting that the desire of his flesh at this point is sexual lust, right? There's, he wants this woman, doesn't care about anything other than getting her. 
She is an object of his sexual lust. There is no question there. So he continues to defy God through this sexual lust. So he has desire for food. He has now a desire for what he shouldn't want. And he's doing that as he comes to this woman. She was right in his eyes. She was, if you will, and I know some of you don't like this word, but what he was saying is she is hot. That's what he's saying. Like this, this, this girl, she's, she's all that. She's the one that I need even though she should have never been an option because of she was an uncircumcised Philistine. She was part of the uncircumcised Philistines. And so he is driven by that desire as well. And this is not the last time. I don't think this is unfair to say this of Samson. This is not the last time that we see this type of desire. Later on, as we go, chapter 16, he goes to the, the city of the Philistines and he is in bed with a prostitute. Obviously, he is being controlled at that point by his sexual lust. And then Delilah comes along, and we see some of the same things we see with this first woman. He sees her, she looks nice, and so he gives himself over to her. And it's very obvious that women are a weakness of Samson's, uh, and he is not putting that in check in any way, shape, or form. One other way we see him following the desire of his flesh, though, is also what we might not see right away, but we see that he, in verse 10 uh, in verse 10, 11 through 20, uh, we see that... Uh, um, actually, yeah, we do have to go back to verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. Now, what is this feast? Uh, this feast was something that was basically a week-long engagement party. It was called a mista. Okay, and this week-long engagement party, by culture, by custom was basically a week-long bachelor party, which would be drinking and drunkenness. This is normal. This is what the culture did. Samson's not supposed to drink anything from the vine. Now, it does not say here that he drank. But if he's at a week-long drinking party, I'm pretty sure the connotation is pretty obvious. He's already broke his Nazarite vow once, and I don't see why he would hesitate to break it again. And so he's part of this week-long drinking party. They bring 30 people to him to be his drinking buddies. All right, And so they, they bring those to him as they celebrate and get ready for the marriage. Uh, and we see, again, he is going and following his desires of his flesh. This is typical, another breaking of the Nazarite vow. He doesn't care about the vow. He only cares about what he wants. Now, I will say this, the next part we're about to see, it could be explained partially by the fact that all these men were drunk because it's just weird and kind of dumb, and it's like a peeing contest, if you will, was what we see happen here in the next part of this story. Uh, point three, Samson's downfall did not only include the desire of his eyes, the desire of his flesh, but also the desire or the, of his pride. The pride, his pride, the desire that he would be better than or to receive things that he needed. Uh, the idea of pride, even in First John, was the pride in what you possess. And so he wants to possess things and he wants to be prideful and show himself to be greater than others. And we see that happen here in verses 11 through 20. 11 through 20. Uh, we see he tries to gain his own, he, gain, he tries to gain through his own cleverness. He tells this riddle based on the fact that he killed the lion and took the honey out, and he's basically like, Haha, I'm gonna get you guys, I'm clever, I can come up with a riddle that you're not gonna be able to solve. 
So Samson is very much in prideful about this. There is no reason that he has to do this. It's not like he's doing it in order so that they will um, come to know Jesus or come to know Yahweh or anything like that. All he's doing is he wants to gain some clothes. He wants to get some clothes and some garments and he wants to have possessions and he wants to show how clever he is. And so he tries to gain through this cleverness. He tells a riddle based on the lion and the honey. And then he thinks he has devised a way to show his superiority over the Philistines and also to get their stuff. If that's not pride, I don't know what is. The other part of pride that I think we see here is that he caves into the pressure of his wife. The pressure of his wife. And I put those in quotes because they are betrothed at this point. They haven't officially been married. All right, but they, 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 she is called his wife because betrothal at that point was as good as marriage. Okay, so she comes and she cries and she does the whole thing, right? She's manipulating Samson and she's crying and saying, you don't really love me because you're not telling me what the riddle is. And these guys have come to her and said, listen, if you don't find out the riddle, we're going to burn your house down and we're going to kill your family. Whoa, okay, remember, if they're drunk, this kind of makes more sense, all right? So they're just going crazy about this riddle, trying to prove each other wrong, trying to defeat each other. And we get to this point now where she keeps crying and crying and asking and asking, and Samson finally gives in. Now you say, why would that be pride? Well, I think the whole point here is he gave up due to the, he gave up due to the fact that he wanted to please his woman. He wanted to please someone else. He wasn't about pleasing God. He wasn't about pleasing anyone. That, he was all about pleasing this pagan woman that he shouldn't have had anything to do with in the first place. By the way, not the first time Samson does it. Spoiler alert, Delilah's coming. All right, so this is not like Samson did this in a vacuum. He continually is going to fall to wanting to please women and therefore will get himself in trouble. And that indeed is a symptom of pride, that he is so worried about what the women in his life think that he's not smart enough to close his mouth. And we see that happen, and Delilah gets even worse. He ends up getting taken and his eyes gouged out. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because she tricks him, because he trusts her, and he gives himself up to her. And so we see a little bit of pride there. We also see, probably mostly here, his anger over losing a bet leads to the murder of 30 men. His anger over losing a bet leads to the murder of 30 men. This is an interesting thing that we see happen here. They figure out the riddle because she figured it out and then went and told the men. They come and they say, hey, what's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And But Samson knows. Samson knows exactly what his wife had done. He knows that she had told them the truth. And so he uses this, had you not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, I don't think this is necessarily him trying to be belittling towards his future wife by calling her a heifer. I I actually found something interesting as I studied this this week. A heifer typically, a heifer wouldn't, uh, it is typically not one that you would plow with. You would plow with male cows, whatever, bulls? You plow with stronger cows than a heifer. And so what he's kind of getting to is this, that, listen, you cheated. That's basically what he's saying. Just like you don't plow with a heifer, you just cheated. And he accuses them of cheating, even though, let's think about it, uh, he doesn't get his way. He accuses them of cheating, but it was his own fault. He allowed them to cheat by telling his wife what the riddle was, knowing that she would tell them. And now he says, you cheated. That's not fair. So he throws a temper tantrum. He feels like they've cheated. He throws the temper tantrum, and then he commits violence towards innocent people. And that's what we see happen. Now it does say the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. We'll get to that in a moment. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men. 
of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Remember what Justin said about the work of the Spirit in Samson. It's unsettling Samson. And I think he's unsettled here because he's starting to really hate the Philistines, which, by the way, is a good thing. And I think he's supposed to have an anger and an angst against the Philistines so that God can use that for him to have victory. But I, it does not show here that he, this gives him the right to go down and murder 30 people just because he felt cheated. Again, pride is rising up in Samson. And he goes and he slaughters 30 innocent people that weren't involved in any of this so he could steal their clothes and give them to the guys who he lost the bet to. So again, we see that he was following the desires of his eyes, he's following the desires of his flesh, and he's following the desires of his pride. There's no question about this. Now let's talk about some implications from this passage as we try to get through this. And I gave you some of them already, but the first thing I want to point out is Samson's downfall was a picture of Israel's compromise. And by the way, at this point, you don't see Samson having a huge downfall. I mean, he's killing people. There's not a big issue. Uh, but remember the end of Samson's life. At the end of Samson's life, his eyes are gouged out, probably burned out. He's in slavery, and God uses him at the very end. But I can tell you this, that wasn't fun for Samson. Some of the other judges, they gave themselves over to, to what God was doing, and they followed God, and he gave them great victory, and then he would give them rest, 30 years, 40 years of rest. Samson's not going to get that. Samson is going to be used by God, like we'll look at in a moment, but that does not mean that somehow everything worked out perfectly for Samson. He definitely had a downfall. He definitely had a problem. He was destroyed. But anyway, Samson's downfall, it was a picture of Israel's compromise. Israel, too, through the book of Judges, has, they, have, they went down, they, and down, and down, and down, and down. That's what we've seen through the book of Judges. Israel keeps going down further and further and further and further in disobedience and in their rejection of Yahweh. We've seen that time and time again. The people of Israel, as I said earlier, I kind of said this, are described as a people who did what was right in their own eyes. 17.6, 21.25 are two of the places where we're told that Israel did what was right in their own eyes. The same exact phrase that is used of Samson. Again, they are being controlled by their desires. They are being controlled by what they think is right, not what God thinks is right or anyone else. They are only worried about themselves, and their desire is bringing them down. As Samson abandons God for foreign women that we see here, we know that Israel has been abandoning God for foreign gods. Time and time again, we've seen it and we'll see it more. That just like Samson is abandoning Israel and abandoning God, God to follow foreign women. Israel has been doing the same thing by going after foreign idols. And so we see that we can't help but see that Samson is almost a picture of Israel at this point. And as he's the last judge, it's kind of a, a, a big exclamation point to the fact that Israel is gone. Israel has given themselves over to themselves and there is no, there's very little hope at this point. And so Samson is showing that. Just as God has given Israel up to themselves, God, we will see later on, we're told that specifically after uh, they cut his hair, God will leave Samson until he gives him one final surge of strength at the end of his life. So we see that Samson 
he was willing to abandon God, and at one point we're told specifically that God actually removes his power from him. The same way it's happening with Israel. And so we see that Samson's downfall is a picture of Israel's compromise. I want you to think about that. When you look at Samson, why is this story told in so much detail? It's to show Israel and to show us how bad it really had gotten. The next implication I want to draw out, and this is something that Justin drew out last week as well. God uses even sinful people to bring about his plan. We're going back to verse 4. I told you we'd get back there. We're told in the midst of all of this happening, in verse 4, this is what we're told. His father and mother did not know that it, talking about this idea that he was pursuing the Philistine women, was from the Lord, from Yahweh. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. There's a debate here whether this he is referring to Samson or God. I think in context, it's easy to see that this is God himself. That he is seeking an opportunity. God is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Fast forward to chapter 15. You're going to see that the men of Judah come to Samson. And they bind him up. And they say, you need to stop fighting with the Philistines. Everything's good right now. Why would you mess that up? Stop fighting with the Philistines. Stop hurting them just because you're angry. Stop it. Don't do it. And Judah ties him up. And they bring him to the Philistines. Now, that's just one piece to show what's happening here. What you've got to understand is the Philistine occupation was not like the other occupations. The, the other nations that had come in, they, they pushed Israel down, they put them into slavery, and they basically wiped them out in every way they possibly could. The Philistines did it a little different. They just infiltrated Israel, and they were, in a way, peaceful rulers. Like, they were making it easy on Israel to want to continue to be part of their kingdom. We see that in, in chapter 15. We also see that just in general. We're not told that there is any wars happening between Philistines and Israel at this point. There's no tension because they're just agreeing to live with each other. Like Israel's just like, all right, well, no big deal. Yeah, I know they're technically over us, but hey, things are pretty good, so let's not mess it up. And so God is looking for an opportunity to show Israel that the Philistines need to be dealt with. And he's using Samson and his sinful anger and his sinful desires. He's taking those things and saying, Samson, this is going to give you a hatred and a vengeance against the Philistines. He's starting to get Samson going that direction so the rest of Israel will follow. And indeed, we will see that happen. God used Samson's sinful desire to bring conflict with the Philistines. As I said, Israel was happy to be ruled by the Philistines. It was a peaceful occupation. Uh, chapter 14 begins then a chain reaction that leads to conflict and the beginning of a deliverance from the Philistines. It starts by killing these 30 people. Then we're going to see that he, uh, they, they marry off his, his wife to somebody else. He gets upset and he burns fields and then he ends up killing, uh, a, he kills a bunch of people with a jawbone of a donkey. We see this is a, this has just started a chain reaction now of conflict with the Philistines so that there is an issue with the Philistines so that it can be begin to have some deliverance. The fight would continue, by the way, until the rule of David, and even there would be skirmishes afterwards, but until David comes along, he finally has a, a sustained victory against the Philistines. But this was the start of the conflict that needed to happen. Another point we can see that God uses even sinful people is we do see the spirit of Yahweh as mentioned two times as it rushed upon him. Remember this idea of rushing upon him is a violent term. It is stirring him up towards action. 
And so he's being stirred up and he is being aggravated. And when he's aggravated because he wants to do his own thing and yet the Spirit is working to aggravate him, he goes and he does things that he shouldn't do and yet God will use them. Keep in mind that God indeed was the one who was stirring up Samson to act, but he certainly wouldn't condone the actions. This was, uh, there were things that he did, breaking his vow, drinking, going after women that he shouldn't have gone after, uh, murdering innocent people, all of these things God wouldn't have necessarily condoned, but he is using. And we've got to get that, we've got to understand that. We've got to understand that God even uses sinful actions to accomplish his plan. Justin mentioned it last week. He used sinful people to set, to crucify Jesus. He uses sinful nations to come in and take Israel captive. But he always does it and he uses those for his own glory and for his own good and for our good. He uses that, but that doesn't mean he condones it. And we need to keep that in mind as we continue to look at the person of Samson. The final implication I want to mention, and we won't read the whole passage, but Samson's failure points to Jesus' success. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is the passage of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. If you know that story, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and he's out there, and he's been out there for 40 days, and he's, he's been... He's been praying and seeking God, and Satan comes to him and tells him, hey, make the stones into bread, the desire of flesh. And Jesus says no when he quotes scripture. Then Satan takes him and, and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you will just bow down to me, then you can have all of what you see. And Jesus says no, and he quotes scripture. And then finally, uh, again, and maybe I'm wrong on the order of this, but uh, he takes Jesus up onto this uh, high steeple, and he's going to, says, throw yourself down so that the angels will catch you. He was, he was showing, because the angels, we're told in the Bible that the angels will catch you and not, you won't get hurt. So show people that. That was the lust of pride. That was wanting to show himself in a way that he wasn't meant to. And Jesus says no, and quotes scripture. And then Jesus continues to go through his life and he doesn't get, he doesn't look for uh, anything out of those temptations, but he simply looks to love others and not to look to himself. You can read that passage in Matthew 4, as I said, and it shows that Jesus is the exact opposite of Samson. Whereas Samson would follow his own desires at not caring about anyone but himself, Jesus is the exact opposite. Whereas Samson allowed his selfish desires to lead him to sin, Jesus remained faithful in the face of temptation. What Samson, a sinful temporary deliverer, couldn't do, Jesus would do as the all-time Savior. Samson's desire was for his own glory at the expense of others. But Jesus' desire was for God's glory and the good of others through his obedience, even unto dying on the cross. Jesus is the exact opposite of Samson. Whereas Samson failed in all of these things, Jesus would succeed. Jesus would bring ultimate deliverance. Samson couldn't and wouldn't, and he, he was relying on his own desires and not the desires of God himself. And so our implications as we look at this story is that Samson is a picture of Israel. Samson is, shows us that God will use sinful people, even, even sinful people, to accomplish his plan. And finally, that all the failure we see in Samson is meant to make us look to Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of salvation. So some questions to consider this morning as we close. 
Have you given up your sin and desire to Jesus, the ultimate Savior? Have you given up your sin and your desire, your selfish desires that want what you see and want what makes you feel good and want what makes you look good? Are, Are these things that are controlling you? And if they're controlling you and you haven't given them up to Jesus, He is the ultimate Savior. He died on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He said no to temptation. He lived the perfect life so that he could give his life and die on the cross to pay for your sin and for my sin. For all the times that we've walked away from God and said, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to follow my desires and not yours. And Jesus said, I died for that. Just come to me and ask for forgiveness. Confess your sins. Uh, call upon me. Believe in me. Uh, follow me. That's what Jesus says. And he says, you can know me, the ultimate Savior. You're your desires don't have to dominate you any longer, but Jesus can be the one that you can run to. Jesus gives ultimate salvation, again, because he died on the cross, because he rose again to show that he had power over sin and death. And he says all you need to do to respond to that gospel, the good news that Jesus came to give his life and to rise again to show his greatness, to show his ability to save that now is just to come to him in faith and give yourself to Jesus. Following your own desires will only lead to downfall and destruction. Following Jesus leads to eternal life, both now and forevermore. Another question that we all need to ask is, are you falling down to your selfish desires? Maybe you're a Christian today. Maybe you know Jesus, but you find yourself falling down to your selfish desires instead of living out God's desires. I would say this, don't be like Samson. See, our kids' stories tell us Samson was a mighty hero. And a lot of kids want to be like Samson. We shouldn't want to be like Samson. Samson only cared about himself. He followed his desires. And he ended up getting destroyed because of it. Don't be like Samson. Back to the book of James, we were there a little earlier. This verse is probably the antithesis of, uh, of Samson's life. It's the verse that if he would have known this, it's, it's just something we need to keep in mind. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, and many of you know this, you've, you've memorized it. In, in James chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Just listen to that verse and look at how Samson didn't do any of that. He wasn't quick to hear. He wasn't listening to his parents. He wasn't listening to God. He wasn't quick to hear. He wasn't slow to speak. He was too willing just to jump out and lash out and say what he wanted to say and get what he wanted to get. And he certainly wasn't slow to anger. He was a murderer. He was one that would just on an impulse do things according to his desire. Put away all filthiness. We see filthiness in Samson's idea. And rampant wickedness. We see that in Samson's life. And then it says, instead of those things, we should receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Samson was not operating on God's time, on God's word. He was operating on his own desires. So don't be like Samson. If you're falling down to your own selfish desires, start living out God's desires instead. Ask him for help in that. Ask him to help you to be like this. 
Help ask God to help you. Help ask Jesus to help you to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Put away filthiness and receive his word. That's what he's saying to you today. Receive his word and don't be like Samson. Final question of the morning. Are you allowing God to humble you and draw you to rely on him? And here's the point. God will do whatever he wants even in our, even in our sin and weakness. And the point here is simple. And Justin made it very clear last week. And again I will say this. God doesn't depend on you and he doesn't depend on me. God only depends on himself. Thank the Lord. Because if he depended on any of us, there'd be no hope. He does not depend upon your obedience or my obedience or my disobedience or your disobedience. He does not depend on us. He only depends on himself. And so therefore, don't think that somehow God can't work if you don't get things right. That is not grace. That is works. We cannot be saved by our works. We cannot be preserved by our works. He will work through us. We do not do it on our own. He will do whatever he wants. Keep that in mind. But on the other hand, of that same idea, this is a humbling thing to think about. You need to rely on God and be humble before him, knowing that he will do whatever he wants. But on the other hand, don't just let it sit and say, well, God's going to do what he wants, so it doesn't matter how I live. And here's another thing to remember. Don't... Just because God is doing good things around you and through you doesn't mean that your relationship with God is okay. Simply put, doing things for God does not equal knowing God and following Him. Don't buy into the lie that if you're doing the right things and it's all about what you do and how you do it, that somehow that's making God happy and that God is working because of that or that you have a good relationship with God. God was doing things through the life of Samson even though he was a selfish, uh, sinful, bad guy. God was doing it through Samson, but it wasn't Samson. And so therefore, Samson was not living in a right relationship with God. He was living in a right relationship with only one person, and that was himself. So we can be living a life that is not necessarily following God, and good things can still be happening. Don't don't get it mixed up. Don't think that somehow because God is doing good in your life that you have everything is good. And also don't assume because things aren't going well in your life that God can't work. God is not dependent upon you. God is not dependent upon me. And we can trust him and thank him and just... Not take that for granted. And so today, if there's anyone here that has not known Jesus as their Savior, today's the day to call out to him and ask him to remove and to forgive your sinful desires and to follow him. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's time to to say, you know what, I need to understand and remember that God does not depend upon me. God does not depend on any of us. And we need to try to live out God's desires and not our own. We need to allow him to humble us, allow him to make us to rely on him and to truly seek him and not just seek to do things for him. That is what we need to do. Don't be like Samson. Let us pray.